Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 359 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles, Adam and Cypher book series, and the new book, the Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? Um, well, I'm probably in the fair to middling range, I feel, today. Um, okay. I, I had a very excellent time this week because I, I did a Zoom panel with Lee and Tanner and oh. Kate Gordon about fantasy, adventure and mystery in children's literature. So that awesome. was a very that was a that was a great conversation. We um had a like it, it kind of was very wide ranging. We went through a whole range of things that you don't often touch on. Like we ended up because we were talking about whether a does a mystery story have to also be an adventure story or not? Um, mm. And my response to that was no. Um, but we we ended up talking a whole lot about you know what makes an adventure story an adventure story and and uh, pacing and you know all sorts of different things that you don't normally really get into in these sorts of uh, panel discussions. So that was great. Mm. And um, I'm also gearing up for, I've got a, excitingly, um, I've got a live event happening on Wednesday, the 4th of November um, in the Your Kids Next Read group, uh, where I will be uh, in conversation. I'm interviewing the wonderful Jacqueline Harvey, who is, of course, one of Australia's best-selling uh, children's book uh, authors, yes. and uh, she's very, very popular in our group. The, her series, uh, she has three main series, Alice, Miranda, Clementine, Rose, and Kenzie and Max, um, mm. and her three series are incredibly popular with uh, with kids of all ages uh, across our group. So there's a lot of excitement around around her visit, so I'm looking forward to that. She's also yeah. just great. You know, she's great fun. I'd, and um, the thing I love about those Your Kids Next Read events is the opportunity, like we mostly just um, take questions from our our group and Jackie answers those. So, you know, you're, you're kind of hearing what you want to hear. You're hearing what's yeah. you know, tailor-made for you, which I think is also is always great too. So, um, yeah, so I'm sort of like I'm, I'm living myself online this week in a, in a funny sort of a way, which is very odd. It's a, and how, how, how do people find Your Kids Next Read? Oh, it's on Facebook. Uh, if you just search your kids next read, it will come up, um, and you'll find all the details about the event there. I'll put a link in the in in the group and in the show notes as well. If you'd um, if you'd like to come along to the event, it's free. And it's free, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's free. Uh, you just need to be a member of the group to be able to see it, basically. Um, and yeah, it'll be it'll be a lot of fun. Like a, we've done, we call them a, a a your kids next read author talk, and this will be, I think, our fourth one. Um, which is exciting. Like they've they've been great. We did uh, Amy Kaufman and we did Melina Marquetta and then of mm. course Alison Rushby, who is another co-host of the group, and myself both had books out in September. So we did uh, launch events in the group for those two things. So this is actually our fifth one. Um, Jackie will be our fifth one. So um, yeah, they've been really good. We, we're getting a lot of people to them, and um, they're just a great. I don't know. It's just a fun. It's a fun thing to do with people that you're, you know, in a Facebook community with. I think. Yeah, you know, absolutely. All get together and, and watch something, so it's fun. Yeah. Mm. What about you? What are you up to? What am I up to? I've had. Um, oh, I've been busy. I've been. So I wrote an article recently um, on the number of incredibly fabulous authors that live in my area because they seem to live in an area that has. People like Michael Robotham and Thomas Keneally, you know, well, Richard Roxburgh is an actor, but he wrote that uh, that chapter book or that, that um, middle oh, grade Artie book. Oh, Artie and the Grime Wave. Yeah, yeah Artie and the Grime really Wave. Um, Malcolm Knox, um, Joanna Nell, Petronella McGovern, B.M. Carroll, some fam- <laughs> fabulous authors. So it was really nice to um, catch up with them again and have a quick chat with them to see what they're up to and ha- get a, gain an understanding of why they think that this is such an area that attracts authors. I haven't quite worked out whether it's an area that attracts authors or it makes authors. <laughs> mm. um, but that's been interesting. But I've had also my first ever cello lesson. Oh, gosh, that's <laughs> right. We were talking about it last week. I have to say the... Uh, the community conversation in the uh, So You Want to Be a Writer Facebook group about your cat crafting, <laughs> cat hair crafting, was very, very funny because, of course, no one is entirely surprised that you have random hobbies 
like cello and cat hair crafting because, you know, anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a little while will um, will know that, that Val finds her creativity in some of the strangest places. But anyway. Oh, dear. Well, I can play Twinkle Twinkle now. On the cello? Yeah. <laughs> Look at you go. You're on fire. <laughs> And I think that the um, the the teacher. I mean, I've only had one lesson, but she seems lovely and and very good. And I, I suspect that she's that the vast majority of her students are children, and mm. because her they reactions, be. her reactions to me, I just have to laugh because she claps her hands and she goes, "Very good! Oh my goodness!" Look at you! You're a star pupil. One lesson. <laughs> You're playing Mozart and you're on fire. It's just hilarious. So I just, I sit there going, I think usually you talk to five-year-olds, but uh, that's okay. That's I'm okay. learning. So. You are so. The, you're, you're in a five-year-old place that you're in your cello career. So that's yeah, okay. that's right. Anyway, we also want to give a big shout out to Gary. Don't we, Al? Yes, we do. (laughs) Gary sent me a very, very lovely letter via my website and I just wanted to um, to say hello to Gary. Uh, Gary has just started listening to us. Um, He he started with episode 355, um, which is only a few episodes ago, and he... um, he just wanted to uh, – he sent me a lovely email about how, how much he loves the podcast, um, that he listens to us while he works his second job cleaning. Um, mm-hmm. And he's also gone way back to the start. He's up to episode seven. So there's, a, as he says, a big mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that he thinks he will switch between the latest ones and the old, and the, and the old ones, which I think is, is probably a good way forward. Uh, Gary said he's 61 and working on his first book. He's got 76,000 words and he's picking up a lot yes. from listening. Um, and he says, congratulations on the show. And who knows, maybe one day we can interview him if he ever gets published. And we will, Gary. Wow. If you, if you get your book over the line, get in touch yes. with us and we will interview you. So welcome, Gary. Welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in. All the best with your uh, with your journey. Seventy six thousand yes. words is a huge achievement. Huge. Really, really well done. Um, and I guess you know Val and I were all you know what we're going to do. We're just cheerleading you, and we're just going to say keep yes. going because um, getting to the end of that first draft is is the key to the whole mess. And mm. um, you know, best of luck. And um, yeah, the, all of those author interviews uh, that you'll be hearing all the way through, um, I'm sure you'll pick up heaps and heaps of great tips. So thank you very much for your email. Yes, and working the second job cleaning is actually really, really good because it does give you the brain space to think about your stories. Because I don't yeah. know if you remember, Al, but um, that time when I um, judged the uh, National Short Story Competition, remember I, I read like remember. 743 <laughs> short stories. I do remember that. Yes, we but all remember that. The winner by a standout um uh, and she she was a well deserved winner um, because her story was so fantastic and so thought through and so considered. Um, she worked as a cleaner and she basically would just go through her characters and her stories constantly in her brain while she was in motion, and yep. she really felt that that helped her create the world and make it come to life. So yeah, so you're Amazing. probably in a good place, Gary. Yep, go Gary. Go, Gary. All right, let's move on to um, one of the links that we've got this week, which is actually on the Writer Centre blog, the Australian Writer Centre blog, and it is Want to Improve Your Writing? Do This One Thing. And we actually have a compilation of different authors and their suggestions on what that thing is. The one thing. Yeah, we've put the link in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at soyouwantobearwriter.com.au. Um, but they all have slightly different takes on it. Um, uh, but, for example, Julian Leatherdale, the late Julian Leatherdale, where he told us, um, read good writers, learn your craft, um, and which is so very important. Uh, and I'm, I... I find it a bit concerning sometimes when I come across authors who don't read <laughs> yes. or don't read much. It's confounding. It is a little bit confounding. It's very, very difficult to have um, incredible output when you're not having also incredible input, I think. 
Yes, yes. And Amy Kaufman said someone talked about the idea of creative compost, that everything you see and read and listen to and absorb falls to your mental forest floor and what you write grows out of it. And if you only read the thing that you write, then you end up sounding like everybody else because you're cooking with the same ingredients. But if you want to learn about how to write something scary, read horror. If you want to learn about relationships, read romance. Read, read, read all this stuff that is not your thing. So read widely as well, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I think that uh, Kate Simpson's tip about reading, you know, you, you do need to keep across what's current in your genre. Yes. I think it's important to not rely on your memories of what you wrote as a kid, uh, sorry, as mm. what you read as a kid to write your stories as a kid or, you know, of the romance novels that you read when you were 18 and getting through your HSC or maybe that was just me on what <laughs> a, a romance novel is like now because genres, you know, they move and change as much as as um, as anything else does, you know, as yes. the world moves and changes. Um, and that's something that came out of our conversation uh, the other night about uh, about fantasy and adventure and things like that. You know, when I think about the mystery stories that I read as a kid, um, which, you know, the, a lot of the the, the Firestar, you know, the, the actual conventions of mystery um, that I have used in that, in that book come from those books I read as a kid, but also mm. they come from the current crime fiction that I read as an adult and they come yes. from the mystery stories that I have read, you know, the more current mystery stories that I have read because, you know, the world has changed a bit and there's a lot more sort of like the way that uh, books for kids are written now, there's more of a screenplay vibe to them than mm. there was, you know, when we were reading kids' stories as kids. Um, and it's actually, it's not a bad thing, you know, And I think, but I think it's something that if you don't read current books, you won't get that sense, that feeling of how those, why those books are currently on the shelves. And I think it's really important to understand why, what pu- publishers are publishing now and mm. why they're publishing it. Absolutely. So important. So um, we'll put the link in the show notes. And um, uh, so that's the one called Want to Improve Your Writing, Do This One Thing. And admittedly, it's more than just one thing, but it's the one thing that those particular authors suggest. Yes. So... I want to let you know about a fantastic new course we have in development that's all about story structure. We chat to authors on the podcast all the time who say that a strong, well-balanced structure is vital if you want a good story. But creating a good story structure is an area that some fiction writers, many fiction writers, in fact, struggle with. So this is where this course, which is really, really practical, is going to help because you'll discover the core story structures and understand and develop the skills that you need to create create and shape your story so it makes readers want to turn the page and keeps them engaged. So it is a literal framework upon which you can use for all your stories. And mm. so um, I think that this course is awesome. I've gone through every single word of this course and it is so ridiculously practical. We don't just say, oh, go do this. We say, oh, go do this. And this is exactly how you do it. Mm. So if you're interested, uh, register your interest at writercenter.com.au slash structure because only those people on that list will receive a special uh, launch discount when the course launches um, in a few weeks. So that's at writerscentercomau slash structure. It's a fantastic course. All right, let's move on to the competition this week. We have three copies of China Blonde by Nicole Webb. Very excited by this because Nicole is AWC alumna. She's done courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. Okay, from a newsreader in Sydney to a hotelier's wife in the heart of China, this is a true story of reinvention, love and finding your home. When Nicole Webb's husband, James, is offered a job in the ancient city of Xi'an in northwest China, they jump at the chance. With their three-year-old daughter, Ava, they fly into a city they know nothing about where they don't know anyone and can't speak the language. Touching down, Nicole and Ava are the only blondes in a jam-packed arrivals hall and culture shock hits them head on. With honesty and humour, China Blonde gives a very personal insight told with a journalist's eye into the lives of those who embraced Nicole with open arms. Her experiences along the way will resonate with anyone who's ever built a life in a new home 
be, be it across the city or across the world. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win for your chance to win one of three copies. Entries close on the 9th of November, writercenter.com.au slash win. And if you're at that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fabulous competition for you to enter. But more importantly, Al. Yes. Are you ready for the word of the week? I'm always ready, though. Always. Good, good. Because it's actually words of the week. You might not be able to cope. I don't know if I will cope, but (laughs) we can try. We can but try. Now, some people may have heard of this term, but they might not know what it means, or they might know what it means, or they might be saying it wrong. Because, ready, it's Sturm und Drang. Sturm, S-T-U-R-M, und, U-N-D, Drang, D-R-A-N-G. Sturm und Drang. Do you know what it is? I, I do, but okay. <laughs> I don't want to take away. I don't want to take away your joy, so I'm going to say no, Val. What could it possibly be? <laughs> okay, so I know that some people sometimes confuse this because I I hear them or I see them write it, uh, and they write they write um, Sturm and Drang, mm. but it actually is und. So it sounds like a band, doesn't it? But actually, it comes from the German meaning storm and stress. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, it refers to a tempestuous struggle. So you might refer to the Sturm und Drang of politics, for example. Yes, you, you could definitely do that, couldn't you? It's been, it's, I just think the Sturm und Drang of 2020 could probably oh, be just, you know, covered off like that right there. Absolutely, absolutely. And, of course, especially this week with what's going on in America, it could definitely refer to politics. Yep. So that now is the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Here's what Astrid Schultz says. I'd always loved writing, but it had taken a bit of a backseat while I was working in film and pursuing my career. And I tried a few times to to write a different story, but I usually would get stuck around 20 to 25,000 words. And I didn't know or have the tools to kind of continue with that process to see the manuscript through. So that's what really led me to looking at a course to push through to the end. So the first course that I signed up was for creative writing stage one. It was just a great starting point of Acknowledging that this was something I wanted to take seriously, it was something that I was investing my time into. The things I found most useful about Creative Writing One was actually being in a classroom environment with other people who had the same desires and aspirations to be published as I did. So it also gave me a wonderful network. It was just this really wonderful time where you know you set aside certain hours a week and you would go into this very supportive environment and learn about something that you're extremely passionate about. So you get to keep that community alive through the Facebook groups to have to support you through your writing career. I enrolled in several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and each one gave me some sort of knowledge or skill or advice that I didn't know about whatever the topic was, whether it was creative writing in general, how to write a novel, how to write history, mystery or magic. And it really kind of gave me this general understanding and base for going out into the world with my manuscripts and hoping to get published. I did envision myself being a published author ever since I was a young kid. I'm so excited to say that I am a published author. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who have we got out? Uh, This week we're talking to the fabulous Lily Wilkinson. Um, She's a really interesting author. She started very young. Um, It's quite an interesting, like our whole conversation was just a little bit jaw-dropping in places for me. Um, And the thing that I think is, uh, you know, she had two books out this year, one in uh, children's fiction, junior fiction, and one in YA, uh, quite different, like really quite different things. And uh, we talked about the balance between those things and, and a whole range of things. So I think you'll enjoy the interview. 
Lily Wilkinson is the award-winning Australian author of 16 books from picture books to YA. She established insiderdog.com.au and the Inky Awards at the Centre for Youth Literature, State Library of Victoria. Her latest books are The Erasure Initiative and How to Make a Pet Monster, Hodgepodge. Welcome to the program, Lily. Thank you. All right, let's go back to the beginning. Tell us how your first book came to be published. Oh, I hate I hate telling this story because it's very embarrassing. Um, <laughs> oh, good. We love a good embarrassing story. <laughs> I don't think it's good embarrassing, though. I think it's bad embarrassing. I think everybody wants, you know, the J.K. Rowling story of, you know, I was starving in a garret and, um, you know, and all of the publishers said no, but then finally one did and now I'm a billionaire and I live in a castle. Um, didn't quite go like that, is that what you said? It, it did not go at all like that, um, <laughs> very sadly, uh, particularly for the last part. So um, my story involves quite a lot of nepotism. Um, and Excellent. It, we love that. <laughs> yeah. Part of it is because my mum is a writer, um, but mum didn't actually become a writer until I was a teenager. Um, she, I was actually published before mum was um, when I was uh, 12 years old or 13 years old in VoiceWorks magazine was sort of my first fiction that was published. And I, I have always known that I wanted to be a writer, like ever since I was five years old, like it's always been the thing that I wanted more than anything else in the world. And so I always like to say that, you know, mum copied my idea instead of me being inspired by her. Um, and so I was sort of getting published in VoiceWorks magazine. I was sort of pursuing my dream of wanting to be a writer. I was working on a novel. I was doing, you know, all of these things in high school. Uh, and I did my high school work experience with Black Dog Books, which were very newly formed. And I learned a lot there about sort of how a book gets made. And Black Dog Books uh, was in the process of publishing my mum's first book at the time. And Black Dog Books were also the ones who published my first book. And that happened um, about well, just under a decade later when I was about 23, 24. And I was working at the State Library of Victoria um, at the Centre for Youth Literature, helping to put on events about young adult literature, promoting young adult authors. I was writing a lot of reviews and articles about YA and about teen readers so I was sort of quite visible in that sense and my writing was getting out there and that I was working on another novel and I got a phone call one day from Andrew Kelly at Black Dog Books and he said you know I've been reading some of these things you've been writing some of these articles and reviews I think you're a good writer and I also can see that you're incredibly passionate about books for young people would you like to try and write a book for us oh. and I said yes and he said about Joan of Arc what? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I said. I said, what? And he said, I want you to write a book for teenagers, a nonfiction book about the life of Joan of Arc. Um, and I said, sure, and hung up the phone and, you know, immediately Googled Joan of Arc because I didn't know anything about Joan of Arc. Uh, and so that was my first book. It was a nonfiction book for a series that Black Dog Books was doing called The Drum um, about sort of historical figures who did what they did when they were young. So my first book was this nonfiction book about Joan of Arc. And so I definitely got uh, that offer through nepotism. Um, it was because they knew me. I had done work experience with them. They published my mom's book. I actually used to babysit their kids when I was a teenager. Um, they lived around the corner from us. So, like, that was definitely a who you know uh, sort of thing. And my first three books were published uh, through Black Dog, and they were all historical, uh, two historical fiction and one nonfiction. And then after that, um, I was sort of developing a particular interest um, in my sort of journalism uh, in books for teenage girls and particularly books that were sort of pink and sparkly. And I was getting sort of more and more outraged that that when a book is funny for boys, it's sort of hailed as being this incredible or it, even if it's a book about relationships for boys, it's, it's sort of often hailed as this incredible work of genius. You know, there were a lot of people who said, oh, you know, John Green, uh, you know, has invented an entire new genre um, of you know, books about feelings and whereas romance has just been there the whole time. Yeah. And, and I was sort of, yeah, railing against that in a lot of articles I was writing. And so I got this phone call one day from Eva Mills from Ellen and Unwin and they were starting a new series called Girlfriend Magazine uh, with Girlfriend Magazine called Girlfriend Fiction. And the series was uh, sort of a bit modelled on that sort of idea of dolly fiction that I read uh, when I was a teenager, but sort of books about contemporary Australian teenage girls that would be interesting to 
Australian teenage girls. And so I pitched a book for that series um, at the invitation of Eva. And that was my first book with Alan and Unwin. And all of my books since then have stayed with Alan and Unwin. So, so my, you, yeah. you mentioned when you were writing, uh, when, you, when you were asked to write the Joan of Arc thing, that you were working on a novel yourself. Yeah. Has your own writing always been sort of in that, like at, at that point, was it always in that sort of YA space? Is that what you were writing, contemporary sort of YA stuff? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I never had any dreams of writing for adults. Um, I think at the time I was thinking I would like to write a picture book because it seemed very fun, but I had absolutely no idea how to go about it. Uh, and I, yeah, like YA is always what I've wanted to do. And I can't imagine um, ever not wanting to do it. And I do definitely want to do other things. I am doing other things, but my heart will always be with young adult fiction. So when you wrote that first girlfriend, Alan and Unwin, you know, novel, mm-hmm. had you, how many manuscripts had you, like how many kind of manuscripts had you written at that point? How many YA no- manuscripts had you written at that point? Zero. Um, you hadn't finished one? No, uh, except for the, the ones that I'd had, the historical books yeah. that I'd had published. Okay. Um, no, I didn't have any. I had some things that I'd started and sort of had been sort of working on, but nothing that I had finished. Okay, so how did you find that process then of switching from, like, okay, so you, you wrote historical novels as well as historical nonfiction. Mm-hmm. When you had to sit down and write Lily Wilkinson, Contemporary YA, did you find it difficult? Like in the sense I, of this is your first real absolute finished crack at this. How yeah. did you find that process? Um, I found it tremendously fun, particularly going from historical fiction to just regular fiction, which required a lot less research. Like Mm. that was great to just, you know, not have to figure out what they had for breakfast and what they would be wearing and what their underwear looked like and all that stuff. Um, And I found, I wrote, I then wrote six romantic comedies in a row and I loved the sort of the freedom to be funny and the freedom to be romantic and the kind of the chatty nature of, romantic comedy was so much fun to write and I just absolutely loved it. All right, so regular podcast listeners, you mentioned your mum, and regular podcast listeners might remember that we actually interviewed your mum, Carol Wilkinson, about 8 billion, excuse me, episodes ago in 158. Um, So you said that she sort of got published while you were, what, in your teens? You were still at high school at that point, were you? Yes, definitely. It was sort of in later high school, I think. Okay, so you got to watch her sort of go through that process. Do you think you learned, you know, did you learn about the publishing process from watching her, from doing your work experience, from, you know, like did you know what to expect when it when it all happened for you? Yeah, definitely I did. So, I, yeah, I knew it through mum. I knew it through a bit of work experience. I definitely knew it through working at CYL and the State Library. Um, I was sort of was already very embedded into the industry. I knew a lot of publishers. I knew a lot of other authors um, and they knew who I was as well. So that kind of really, really helped. Um, and because I knew a lot of other authors, I could talk to them about the process and like all of that felt a lot easier. And it was sort of a really soft entry as well because I went from, you know, writing those three historical books and then the Girlfriend series, uh, you know, the book was part of a series and so it wasn't until I wrote Pink, which was by then my, what, fifth book, um, that that was sort of really the first book that I felt was like my novel, the book that I hadn't been commissioned to write, the book that was entirely a story that I wanted to tell. And so I'd already had all of these other books under my belt. So I didn't have that kind of fear of this is my first novel because I don't really feel like I had a first novel. Um, so that was sort of really helpful I think to not have that fear of what's going to happen and I think particularly having mum as as sort of you know going through this process before me was in some ways um incredibly useful but in some ways um not in any way representative of what the journey of an author is like because the Dragon Keeper series was so successful yeah um you know, it sold so many copies, it won so many awards, and that that is incredibly atypical uh, for a book for young people, and particularly a young pe- a book for young people in Australia. You know, it did so well, it continues to do so well, and there's not a lot of authors who have that kind of level of success. Most of us sort of, you know, just hang out in the middle somewhere. I get, well, that was, I guess, my next question too, because I, I think that having, um, well, you've got your mum on one side, um, and then you've got all of those other authors that you're dealing with and all of the, you know, through the publishing process, you see that most people don't have the JK experience. So mm. 
Were you expecting it or were you not expecting it? I definitely wasn't expecting it, no, um, because, you know, I'm a realist um, and, <laughs> and I don't um, – I think that that kind of level of success comes from lots of things. Like some of it is just, you know, your sheer talent and how good the book is, but a lot of it is just a roll of the dice. Like it's just being in the right place at the right time. It's writing the right book at the right time um, and, you know, getting the right marketing support behind it and all of that kind of other stuff. And who knows whether that will happen. And then there's, you know, an X factor that is not under anybody's control. And I think that it was like, being in that industry and seeing writers who I thought were some of the greatest writers in this country not achieve that kind of stratospheric success um, sort of was a real reality check to me Um, because, you know, you can be an amazing writer, you can win a lot of awards, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're selling a lot of copies. I'm just going to segue slightly to the work that you were doing um, with Insider Dog and the Inky Awards. How did you like you how did you come how did that come about maybe explain what insider dog is and the inky awards and then just talk about how that kind of came to be yeah so yeah i started working at the center for youth literature while i was still at uni i was doing my honors year and i basically just answered a job in the paper and it was another horrific case of nepotism because um (laughs) i'm really enjoying this chat it's just like and then this happened and i fell into it because i babysat someone's kids yeah this one is much the same um so Agnes Neuenhausen, the late, great Agnes Neuenhausen, um, was running the Centre for Youth Literature at the time. She started the Centre for Youth Literature. She was an incredible human being. Um, and I knew Agnes because when I was in primary school, I used to go to the Centre for Youth Literature events. Um, they put on these sort of monthly events. And my library, my primary school librarian used to take us on a Sunday afternoon. And so I kind of knew who she was. And because I was a regular attendee, she knew who I was as well. Um, then in high school, her husband was my high school librarian. Um, and she also lived around the corner. It turns out all authors and literary people live in Clifton Hill. Um, (laughs) so I, I kind of knew who she was. I worked in the cafe in Clifton Hill and she came in occasionally. So she knew who I was. She also knew who I was because of mum. So when I went into this job interview, I had the advantage of, um, you know, that she knew who I was and she could see that I was very kind of passionate and sort of tangentially involved in the industry. And it was a very basic admin job, you know, I did mm-hmm. filing and photocopying, but I put in a lot of extra work, you know, I read so many of our review copies, I wrote a lot of book reviews, I put in a lot of time and effort to, you know, to demonstrate how passionate I was about this. And so after a, a couple of years, you know, I got promoted into a different position and I ended up um, yeah, making Inside a Dog. And that happened because at the time, this feels incredibly old fashioned to say, but there were no kind of, it was pre-social media and it was before there were any kind of online communities for teenagers mm. about literature. And nowadays, teenagers create their own communities within social media and that was not a thing that happened and there was nowhere online for young people to talk about books and so we thought well we'll build a website and it turned out to be this ridiculously difficult thing um, because it was back in the day when making a website was a hard thing to do you couldn't just do it yourself on Squarespace you had to um, you had to pay people to do it and so in order to get the money for it that took literally years um, of trying to find funding for it and get a grant that would give us enough money and it would we needed a lot of money to do it um I mean at least a lot of money in like book terms which is not a lot of money and so anyway we finally got the funding and so we created this website and it was a really fascinating process the state library wanted us to go through all of this like um uh, you know they hired consultants to figure out what the website needed to look like and the consultants were terrible um (laughs) And, and like went and did all this, you know, focus testing uh, at private schools that I resisted a lot and came up with um, the recommendation that because boys and girls like really different things, we should make two websites, one for boys and one for girls. Um, so we didn't do that. And anyway, so Inside a Dog was born. Uh, it's called Inside a Dog because of the Groucho Marx quote, um, outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside a dog, it's too dark to read. And so we called it Inside a Dog because it seemed easy to remember. And, you know, teensreading.com.au just didn't really have a good ring to it. And so the website was was always supposed to be a place where teenagers could come together and talk about books. And it has changed a lot. It's now on its, I think, third 
iteration of the website. So it's continually getting updated and, and sort of made to be uh, reflective of what is needed in the community. And it's been really successful. And from that, we also created the Inky Awards. And that was Australia's first teen choice book award. There are lots of children's choice book awards in Australia, but this was one that actually um, reflected what teenagers want to read and what they do read. And so one of the things that was really important in creating that award was to have two prizes, a silver inky from a book published overseas and a gold inky to be published, to, to be given to a book published in Australia, to reflect the fact that teenagers don't just read Australian books, but also to celebrate books that are Australian um, because, you know, promoting those Australian voices is very important. Um, the Inkies is currently, has a bit of an uncertain future. The State Library are not um, uh, committing to refunding it. And so I'm very hopeful that it will find a new home somewhere else. I was going to ask you about that because it's, you know, that is something that I, you know, I saw that the awards are not running this year and <clears throat> there's a lot of changes being made. And <clears throat> the message I'm getting here from you is, yes, okay, you know, you knew people who knew people, but um, I also see that you're very passionate about, you're very, very passionate about what you do and you're very passionate about the industry. And I think um, while you talk about like this being like a nepotistic story and stuff, you're, it's, it's only like that because you put yourself in the position of knowing people. And I, it's, a, it's something that Valerie and I talk about a lot, about getting involved, um, about talking to people, about meeting other authors, about, you know, uh, understanding the industry. And I think that you've done that. Um, okay, you might have fallen into it as a teenager, but I think it's something that you've obviously put a lot of time and effort into over the years. Um, as a sort of like an offline, uh, you know, like platform building. I don't think you probably thought about it at the time, but um, it is an important part of, uh, of of being part of an industry like publishing, isn't it? To understand it and to talk to people and to meet people and to kind of be part of building the industry as much as you are part of, you know, writing books. Yeah, absolutely, um, 100%. And I think that that's really, really important. And I say to a lot of people, you know, I was lucky because I had some of those contacts, but a lot of them I built myself and a lot of them is saying yes to things. A lot of that it is it is reading the books. It's a massive part of it. It's yeah. meeting authors. It's going to events. It is making those connections. It's being active on social media. Uh, and it's being part of a conversation. And I think that that is really, really important. I think that the writing community in Australia is a small but incredibly friendly community. Yeah. And it is not hard to make those connections. Uh, and you find them through all sorts of different sort of alleyways and pathways. One of the other things I did when I was in my 20s was I sat on the board of Express Media um, for five years uh, who make VoiceWorks magazine. And that happened because I had been involved with VoiceWorks magazine as a teenager um, and that they sort of saw that I was doing my work at, at the Centre for Youth Literature and invited me to join their committee of management. And that created some really interesting connections. Um, I also just learnt a lot about sort of all sorts of different things, management committees being one of them, but also <laughs> publishing in Australia. And, you know, the, the other people on the board at that time are now the people who are running a lot of the big literary stuff. You know, George Dunford was on the, the board at the same time. Um, Michael Williams was on the board at the same time. Uh, there were sort of so many different people who now are sort of running these massive things. And so I know those people. And so a lot of it is, is yeah, just getting to know people, um, you know, being nice. Um, <laughs> Putting on your friendly face, right? Yeah. And just always be willing to do things um, and, to, and to put back. Like it is a community that, you know, if you can give something to it, it will give things back to you. So do you write full time these days? And what does that look like for you? Um, I did write full-time before I became a um, prep homeschool teacher during <laughs> lockdown. Right. So Lily's in Melbourne and currently experiencing um, the COVID restrictions, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so how are you managing to get your writing done these days? Oh, not very well. Um, I get, I'm getting up at 6am. My work day now starts at 6 and I work through till 11 and then I swap with my partner and I do school uh, for the afternoon session. But uh, yeah, I would nominally work, um, yeah, be writing full-time. I do a little bit of work with Melbourne University, um, supervising postgraduate students, and I do a lot of, well, pre-COVID times, I do a lot of school visits and a lot of public speaking. Um, now I do a lot of public speaking on Zoom, which is less fun. Mm, um, but, <laughs> yeah, but all of that is part of writing full-time. 
All right, so many authors struggle to branch out of one particular area of publishing, like they write, you know, one, they write romantic comedy or whatever, and they can't, you know, find it difficult to kind of branch out into other things. But you've actually written everything from picture books to YA. What do you think is the secret to having a multifaceted career like that? Are you just having a try at everything and sending it off? I mean, how do you, how do you convince your YA publisher that you also want to write picture books? Um, part of it is just, again, having conversations. It's coming up with ideas. Um, with the picture book, uh, I ha- it's still published with Alan and Unwin, but I had a different publisher for it. Um, Susanna Chambers was my publisher for those um, and also for the How to Make a Pet Monster books instead of Jodie Webster, who's my publisher for my YA. Um, and part of that um, is, again, just knowing those people. Um, Susanna and I have kids who are the same age and so we sort of spent a lot of time uh, sort of whinge texting each other when our kids were really small and it was just nice to have somebody else to, to text to sort of say like, oh, yeah, my kid didn't sleep last night either. Um, and, you know, your friends without children don't care about that stuff at no, all. they don't. <laughs> uh, so it was just nice to have, you know, that ear uh, you know that receptive ear and so we had a lot of conversations um, about that stuff and also I think a really big part of it was having banjo meant that all of a sudden I was reading picture books at a volume that I had never read them before and it became and I would go to our local library um, and sort of get armloads of books our local library also had like a a book sale a few times a year where, you know, you could fill up a box for $10 and I would love doing that because it would introduce me to a lot of older picture books um, and just a lot of random stuff that I hadn't come across necessarily. Um, And I mean, picture books are so beautiful, but it was really useful to me to be able to read them at such a great volume because that helped me figure out what makes the good ones good and what makes the bad ones bad and about the interaction between words and pictures um, at sort of a level that I hadn't really considered before. Uh, And then the same with the junior fiction as well. Like Banjo got to an age where he was starting to, we were starting to read, you know, those early chapter books together. And I was like, I reckon I could write one of these. Um, And so I just gave it a go. And I think because my, with my publisher, I actually, Years and years ago, like maybe 10 years ago, pitched a junior fiction series to Alan and Unwin and they liked it but they said at the time that they really wanted to focus on building my brand as a YA author. Um, And I think that was definitely the right call. But now I think that brand is very well established and so that kind of gives me the freedom to try other things as well. That makes sense. Um, okay, so you currently have two new books out, uh, one junior fiction and the start of a new series and mm-hmm. one YA. How did it come that, because they sort of come out in the same month almost, haven't they? So how did that come about that they were so close together? Um, a lot of it is just random scheduling stuff. Like, um, you know, they both have, they're actually three slightly different they're not, they're the same publishing house, but the pet monster is, uh, through Albert street books, which is an imprint. So they're sort of on different, but concurrent schedules, but really with pet monster, it was about, um, uh, the, you know, getting the, the production chain, you know, with the illustrator and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I I just, they both happened at the same time. All right. So let's just Um, talk about how to make a pet monster hodgepodge mm -hmm. uh, to start with. Um, so it deals with monsters, obviously, um, brings you into chapter books for the first time. Why, why did you, how did you know that um, How to Make a Pet Monster wasn't a series of picture books? Like, how did you know it had to be chapter books? I think I kind of went the other way. I wanted to write a series of chapter books okay. um, because it, I knew that it was a really, you know, to be quite cynical about it, I knew it was a very, very lucrative market. Yeah. But also it was a market that I didn't, have any experience with um you know it opens up a whole new world of being able to visit primary schools which I have not really had much experience in and it just seems like an incredibly fun thing to do to write a book that's you know it's only 10,000 words instead of 80 Mm. and you know to be able to work with an illustrator and all of that kind of stuff it just seemed it was so appealing to me and seemed so fun and also, I, this is the first book that I've ever written that's a series. I've never written a sequel or a series before. And that's something that 
sort of felt again like a bit of a soft entry instead of having to write like a massive YA trilogy you know writing a series of books that they're only 10,000 words long sort of felt a little bit more manageable um but yeah so I wanted to write a junior fiction series and I knew that I wanted it to be fun I knew I wanted it to be funny I knew that I wanted it to have um a certain degree of commercial appeal like I wanted it to be in big w um because I think that the thing about junior fiction that you really get um that you don't necessarily have the opportunity for in YA is to be able to reach kids who are not necessarily big readers yeah to come you know and maybe kids who come from families who would not necessarily consider visiting you know, your local independent bookshop, but, you know, who will pick something up um, in one of those deep discount stores. So that was really appealing to me to be able to reach a much broader audience of reader and to be able to introduce some ideas to those readers and to all young readers that sort of something I always really tried to do with the romantic comedies was the idea of packaging some sort of quite big and serious meaty ideas into a very kind of fun sparkly funny book and that's something that I think children's literature is incredible at doing Um, I think romance in particular is very very good at doing that and I think that junior fiction is too so I really wanted to be able to you know I like to think of it as you know being like um like that white bread with hidden fiber um (laughs) you know it's something that is really really fun but that certainly but that encourages young people to think about things in ways that perhaps they haven't done before. And I think that that's sort of the greatest thing that literature can do is encourage people to think critically about the world. That makes sense. Um, Yeah, and so that's sort of where I started and uh, sort of I worked very, very closely with Susanna, my publisher, in sort of developing. I sort of had this vague idea about kids making monsters using round-the-house ingredients and from there, we kind of worked really closely, kind of building it out to make the concept of the series. All right, so let's move to your other book, which is out at the moment, which is a YA novel called The Erasure Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very, very complex story. Um, and it rev- like the, the, the character and the plot are all sort of revealed in increments. Mm-hmm. How did you approach writing that? Um, with a great deal of plotting. I knew that because in the book the the basic premise of the book is that there are seven people on a self-driving bus that's going round and round a deserted tropical island and nobody has any memory of who they are or how they got there. And so I knew that it's essentially a locked mystery, a locked room mystery mm. where most of the book is set on a bus or on a in a very boring environment and there are seven people who have no memory. So there's very little exposition that you can do. Yeah. And I knew that it had the potential to become quite boring because when people can't tell you about themselves, you don't get a really strong sense of character and the setting isn't changing. And so how do you make that a gripping page turner? And so I knew that I needed to have um, sort of interesting ways of revealing exposition. And I knew that for every question I answered, I needed to ask like three more questions. And I knew that every single chapter needed to have a twist and a reveal. So I was very, very strategic in plotting the book. It was very thoroughly plotted before I started to write any of it. Um, And the basic structure did not change at all. Um, You know, little bits and pieces changed as I went. But, yeah, I was very, very strategic in the, the planning and the plotting of it. Where did the idea for it come from? Um. I wanted to write a fantasy novel. Um, It's this fantasy novel that I have been working on for about six years and I pitched it to Jodie, my publisher at Ellen and Unwin, and she said, yeah, that sounds great. But um, (laughs) she's like, after the lights go out had just done really, really well. Um, So we were sort of going off the back of that. It had been, you know, a very successful book. And she said, I'd really like to have another YA thriller from you. You know, you did The Boundless Sublime, you did After the Lights Go Out, you've done, you know, Girl in a Cult, you've done Girl in a Bunker, you know, do, I don't know, Girl on a Boat, Girl on a Plane. Um, 
And I didn't really want to do it. So I went home and I was very grumpy and I, you know, was very mean to my family for a few days. And I started to make these lists of sort of potential ideas for thrillers, but I didn't really like any of them. And all I wanted to do was work on my beautiful sparkly fantasy story. And then at three o'clock in the morning, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you always think is going to happen when you're a writer is that you wake up in the middle of the night with a great idea. Um, And it has only happened to me twice in my career, but this was one of them. I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and I thought a girl is trapped in a self-driving vehicle with no memory of who she is or how she got there. Um, and that was very kind of, um, as my friend C.S. Picat would say, very itty, um, very kind of intriguing idea to me. I think originally she was in a self-driving car and it was in a city and I liked the idea of her sort of being trapped, sort of banging on these sort of um, one-way windows while sort of crowded city streets were there and it didn't end up going down that path at all but I found that idea very interesting and that led me down the path of memory loss and then the sort of the idea for the stories that have unfolded from that wow but yeah wow okay that the three o'clock in the morning idea did you actually write it down or did you think you would remember no. it the following morning oh no it could have gone really, wrong it could it really could have <laughs> um yeah it could have gone horribly wrong um, so YA novels, you know, there's there's often, you know, dark, thoughtful themes involved in a, in a YA novel. Um, what do you think is the key to dealing with those in a way that is both, like, authentic, honest, but also, you know, sensitive? I think that having hmm, – that's a really good question. I think that thinking about the reader is really important. Um, you know, people say – there's a lot of sort of um, a lot of truisms, I think, with writing literature, in particular writing literature for young people, where people are like, oh, you should always write for yourself. And I think that that is partially true, but you should also be writing for other people as well, because otherwise, why would you show anybody? Um, so I think that having thinking about who you're writing for and how what potential effects the book might have on your readers is important and particularly for young readers you know teenage teenagehood is an incredibly um tumultuous time it's a very emotional time it's a very intense time and you know a lot of teenagers really struggle and i think that literature can be an incredible way to help young people through those times um to be seen in literature i think is incredibly important but if you do it wrong, then it can be it can be harmful. And so I think being really aware of who you're writing for and of everybody who could potentially read the book is important. It's but then, it? yeah, it's really difficult because you don't want to get too hung up in that either. Because you know you can really hamstring yourself in sort of of you know in anxiety about that. But I think I think a level of honesty is really important, and I think. For me, I always try to, you know, people say that young adult literature should always end with hope. Um, I think all literature should end with hope. I am not hugely interested in literature that ends with no hope um, because I think that the world has hope in it. Um, And I think that the thing that really makes young adult literature um, very empowering for young people is that it gives young people agency in their stories, you know, that it gives young people the ability to change the world. And I think that there's something very, very um, engaging about that. I actually wrote my PhD thesis on uh, on young adult literature and activism. And so I think that it's that. I think it's giving protagonists power and giving them agency. Given the research suggests that a big part of the audience for YA <coughs> novels is actually people who are in their 20s or older, mm-hmm. um, do you... Like, do you have that in mind when you write or are you writing with a teenager in mind, you know, at the forefront? Definitely the teenager in mind for the forefront um, because, I mean, lots of adults read young adult literature. I am one of them. I love young adult literature. But the reason why I love it is because it's written for teenagers. And so, uh, like, it's definitely something I do think about. But the book is first and foremost for young people and I'm delighted if adults like it. But... It is the young reader that I really want to reach and that I really want to engage. Okay. Um, so, okay, let's talk about the sorts of things that you do to promote your books. We touched on this a little bit um, earlier, but you, um, you're doing a lot of school visits, Zoom, mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, yes. What, what kinds of other things do you do? And how do you, I guess, how do you reach each different group of readers, given that, you know, most of your readers are under 18? 
Yeah, well, definitely it's reaching teenagers is the hardest thing. Um, it's very, very difficult to do because, um, you know, they are not necessarily looking for you. Uh, and also teenagers tend to be less focused on, you know, seeking out Australian voices and that kind of thing. And, you know, they are obviously very influenced by popular culture and that means that most of the books that most of the teenagers are reading are coming from the US because those are the ones with a Netflix series or, you know, a seven-movie deal or just (laughs) massive marketing budgets and all of that sort of stuff. And so, I mean, and that's definitely not just to say that only teenagers do that. Everybody does that. Um, So it is hard to get past that and you have to find other ways. So definitely visiting schools is a really big part of that. That's sort of my opportunity to be able to talk to teenagers to their faces and that makes a massive difference. And then otherwise, you know, nowadays it's all got to be online because we can't go anywhere. Mm. Um, But, you know, there is a very, very vibrant um, sort of social media community around Australian young adult fiction. There are amazing, you know, book bloggers and bookstagrammers and booktubers and, uh, you know, it's this incredibly passionate community that I just adore and I have loved so much going from working at CYL, trying to, where I felt like YA, you know, it was just as the Harry Potter craze was winding down. It was pre-Twilight and the amount of, of joy that I get going from a period of YA history where basically my job was to tell people that YA was a thing that existed to now where it is like one of the dominant forms of pop culture has been extraordinary. Mm. And watching those online communities spring up, you know, we spent so long figuring out, you know, how can we engage teenagers with reading online? And then like teenagers just went and did it themselves. They started up all of these fabulous you know, online clubs and communities for them to talk about the books they love. And I think that that is just amazing. And certainly during lockdown, releasing two books during lockdown, it has been so heartening to see the kind of effort that these readers have been putting in to promote our books is just, yeah, it's amazing. Brilliant. All right, so what's next? What are you working on at the moment? I'm still working on that fantasy novel. Um, (laughs) It's going to be one of those epic sagas that you know 10 yeah. years in the making isn't it yeah it, it's already 10 years in the making um it's actually the first draft of it is currently with my agent in the u.s Ooh. so fingers crossed fingers but crossed crossed on that. i mean it's like literally the worst possible time to be shipping a book around the u.s um yeah. so it's possible that nothing may come of that and i'll just have to wait a couple of years and see what happens later on um, but I am also writing books two and three in the Pet Monster series. Um, book two should hopefully be out um, before Christmas and then book three sometime next year. Um, and then I'm thinking I'm sort of drafting another YA book as well. I'm sort of in the very, very early stages of that as well. Um, so, yeah, and I'm not quite sure what that will be about, but I think it will be about secret societies because, you know, that feels – like a natural next step going from cults to preppers to uh, to whatever the Eurasia Initiative is to, you know, secret societies feels like it's in the same sort of ballpark. I love secret societies. My yeah, new, me too. My new series has a fabulous secret society in it, so I'm all, I'm all for it. The more Excellent. secret societies, the better. Yeah. All right, so we're going to finish up today, Lily Wilkinson. First of all, where can people find you online? Um, they can find me on all of the places Um on Instagram, I'm Lily, but with an extra L-I, so Lily um, Wilkinson. And I'm Twitter for Lily on Twitter. And But if you Google my name, you'll find all of them anyway. Um, and, yeah, I'm on all of the things. And lilywilkinson.com.au? Yes. Excellent. Yes. Why are you Twitter of a Lily? I was looking for you the other day <laughs> and I'm like, this, this feels like – this feels like a handle that someone started about 10 years ago and then thought, oh, well, I can't change it now. Yeah, it's a lot longer than 10 years. I was a very, <laughs> very early adopter for Twitter. Um, and, if, like, you know, I don't I don't have a lot of regrets in my life. But one of the things I regret is not just, like, getting at Lily um, because I could have at the time I, and I didn't. And Or even just Lily Wilkinson, which is also not available now. Um 
Yeah, I some anyway, regret there. there you are. It's one of yeah. the things, again, this is one of the things that Val and I um, often talk about, which is basically like as soon as you think I might write a, write a novel one day, get yourself on social media with your yeah. name yeah. <laughs> in, every, in all of the places. Yeah, I don't have my name on any of them. It's very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, we're going to finish up today uh, with your top three tips for writers. What do you have for us? Um, I have my three tips uh, read, write, and listen. Um, the read is, you know, fairly obvious. I think that that writing and reading are like, you know, breathing out and breathing in. You need to do one in order to do the other. Um, and and read as much as you can and read good stuff and figure out why it's good. Read bad stuff and figure out why you don't like it. Um, I find this incredibly useful. I know a lot of people say that they don't like to read in the genre that they're writing in, but I think certainly in the early stages it's really useful to be able to like pull a book apart and figure out how it works. Like when mm. I was studying how to make a pet monster, you know, I got a couple of um, Andy and Terry's treehouse books and just like deconstructed it. Like I broke it down chapter by chapter and saw like, you know, the bones, which is underneath all of sort of the silly seemingly randomness. Those are actually incredibly tightly, um, cleverly plotted books. They are. And so, we like spoke to, to we spoke to Andy. I, I don't if you haven't listened to that interview, um, have a look for it. Andy Griffiths. Mm. We talked to him about you know his writing process, and it was the most sensible conversation I've had about writing silliness that yeah. I've ever had. He's he's incredibly um, he's a spreadsheet guy. You know, yeah. underneath all that zany stuff, it's the spreadsheet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and that kind of realization was really big for me. Yeah. Um, so read, definitely write, obviously, um, but not necessarily obviously. I think that there is, I've been thinking a lot this year about how there is an incredible privilege in doing something for a job that a lot of people do for a hobby. Um, but it comes with some misunderstandings as well. Like I used to write as a hobby, um, which meant that when I felt like writing, I would write and I would enjoy it. And if I didn't feel like writing, I wouldn't do it because it was my hobby and you only have to do your hobby when you want to. And there's all this other stuff with, that comes along with it being your job, like running a small business and, you know, invoices and lots of really boring stuff. But also deadlines and having to force it when you don't feel like it um, is something that I have become very familiar with this year um, during all of the lockdowns. And I think that part of it is learning to do that. It's learning to force it when you're not feeling it. I think there is a lot of sort of nonsense around creativity of that you have to be feeling it and you have to, you know, have your muse and all of that kind of stuff I think is nonsense. I think it is a job and you have to treat it like any other job. You do it when you have to do it. And the only way you can get better at that is by practice. And becoming a better writer is all about practicing. And, you know, there's the Malcolm Gladwell thing of how you need 10,000 hours of practice at anything to become an expert at it. And I don't, I think writing is the same. And I think that because we can all write, um, because we learn how to do it at school, means that we think sometimes that we've, we've done that part, that we've done the practice. But, yeah. but writing literature is a craft. And it is a craft like any other that you get better all the time. And like, I am still getting better. I hope that I will always be getting better because otherwise, why am I doing it? And so I think that it's that it's a lot of practice. And, but the good part of that is that if you write something that nobody ever reads that you don't finish, it's never a waste of time because it's always making you better. Yeah. Um, and then the last one is listen. And this is something that you know, we've been talking a lot about in the YA community over the past couple of years is about diversity, um, is about, um, you know, promoting voices that have not been promoted very much before and about writing characters who are not like us. Mm. And it is a very, very fraught issue. Mm. Um, and there's, again, there's a lot of essentialism. There's a lot of people saying you must do this, you must never do this. And I don't think that any of that is very useful because everything is dependent on context. But I do think the most important thing is to listen and particularly like as a, you know, as a middle-class white lady, I am trying very hard to not talk as much and to listen more um, to people whose voices haven't been heard and to really listen and, and to follow the advice that those people are giving in how to represent them um, and their cultures and their identities. And 
you know, again, it's, it's very hard and I am sure I, like, I know I have made mistakes and I'm sure I will continue to make mistakes, but I am trying to do better at that. Excellent. All excellent tips. Thank you so much for your time today, Lily Wilkinson. Very much appreciated. Best of luck with both of your new books and with all of the things that are coming up in the future. And um, good luck with that fantasy novel. Thank you, Alison. There we go, Lily Wilkinson. All right, Alison, what are you doing in the coming week? Um, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I'm kind of just cleaning things up and working through what my next thing is going to be and I'm not writing anything at the moment. I think we talked mm. about that last week. I'm just I'm just sort of giving my brain a bit of a rest at the moment and, um, you know, I'm, I'm watching lots of documentaries and I'm reading lots of things and I'm just, um, you know, I'm just opening up my mind for different things that are out there and I've got some ideas about what I would like to write next um, but I'm just not quite in a position to start anything and I'm all right with that like generally Mm. speaking I'm my forward in my imperative my forward imperative is Mm -hmm. is incredibly strong um but at the moment I'm just a bit like you know I think I can probably just I can take a minute I'm just gonna take a minute what um do you have any particular documentaries that you can recommend um, well, you know, I don't tend to watch a lot of like what's current on Netflix. It's not okay. kind of what I do. Um, I am watching The Secrets of the Museum, uh, oh. which is on the ABC, I think, at the moment, which I am absolutely loving. It's behind the scenes of the Victoria and Albert Museum. This oh. is the kind of stuff I watch. Um, there's a fantastic BBC. It was on the BBC a few years ago, which was about um, life in a medieval castle. And it was an experiment in France where they actually rebuilt a castle and castle oh. life. And they did oh. it using medieval techniques and they, they did everything cool. the way it was done at the time. Um, and that was absolutely fascinating. And for someone like me, it was incredibly, you know, instructive. Um, mm. Yeah, so those are the – when I watch documentaries, that's the kind of stuff I, I tend to find myself watching. Train documentaries. My husband is obsessed <laughs> with train documentaries. Um, and I find them useful because of the places that they go and the things yes. that they see. Um, so, yeah, for me it's 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 that sort of stuff. I have found this year, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly at the moment, I think um, there's a lot of, you know, really, uh, you know, interesting and challenging stuff around on Netflix and, you know, on, on the various mm. streaming platforms at the moment, and mm. I don't want to watch any of it. I just why, want why something. Why is that? Because I don't want to watch any of it. I want, I want to watch something that is going to – I'm watching House Hunters International, I'm watching people look at houses that they might rent in France and choosing the one that I think that they should move into and they never choose the one that I think they should move into. So I then get to go, oh, how silly is that? Um, that's where I'm at. I, I, I can't, I just, I just want to escape. And so I'm just watching absolute drivel and it's fine. I'm good with it. Okay. (laughs) I'm shocked with the number of television shows that I, you know, kind of literally stumble upon and they're two, three, four years old and um, there's a pandemic in them. Yeah, I know. It's incredible, isn't it? (laughs) I just don't watch – I mean, we've talked about this before. I don't watch a lot of television. It's just sort Mm. of not my – it's not my medium. Um, So, Mm. you know, for me it's sort of background noise – until everyone goes to bed and then I turn it yeah. off and read a book. Like, it's right. just what I do. <laughs> All right. Well, should you decide to watch a more contemporary documentary on Netflix, mm. I can highly recommend Three Identical Strangers. It's been out for maybe mm. a year now, so it's not super new, yeah. but it is very, yeah. very good. Mm. Um, and it's about uh, these three, well, they're triplets. Mm. That doesn't give anything away who were all literally separated birth and come together, uh, discover each other later in life and slowly discover the reason why they were separated, which is absolutely and utterly fascinating. All right. Uh, That's it for this week's episode. Where do we find you online now? Uh, You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at valeriekoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye.
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 